0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of How Does the Social Work, the podcast for and about social workers, brought to you from the Division of Social Work at Brunel University, London. My name is Yochai Hakak, and I'm a Senior Lecturer in Social Work at Brunel. Our guest today is Dr. Prospera Tedam, who is currently an Assistant Professor in Social Work at the United Arab Emirates University, in the United Arab Emirates, where she has been since August 2018. Between 2016 and 2018, she was a principal lecturer in social work at Anglia Ruskin University. And before that, between 2006 and 2016, she was a senior lecturer in social work at the University of Northampton. So she's from around here. Prospera's practice background is in children and families, specifically in child protection, children looked after fostering and adoption. Prospera was uh, the children's safeguarding advisor to the Home Office between 2011 and 2018, and her research interests are around culturally sensitive practice, anti-racist social work, and anti-oppressive practice learning, and her preferred theoretical lens is critical theory, as uh, you know. Those, some of us might uh, assume from the range of topics and areas. Prospera's doctoral research examined the placement experience of Black African social work students in England, and the reason why we invited Prospera um, for this interview is a very recently published book titled anti-oppressive social work practice published by learning matters so hello prospera and a warm welcome to you thank you very much Yohai.
1: hi thank you for welcoming me um, and inviting me i look forward to this conversation
0: great my co-hosts for today are rashida lubankudi and joe burns rashida can you please be the first to introduce yourself
2: Yes, thank you, Yoha. My name is Rashida, as I uh, already mentioned. I am a student in Brunel and studying social work first year in Masters. And my background uh, is from IT. I studied computer science and I've worked in sector like IBM games. And after having a kid, I start seeing things differently. You know, my views about people, nature start changing. And I knew that I would like to do something, something different where I can contribute to other people. Mm-hmm. And one of my sisters, she's a social worker as well, a social worker for 20 years, and she encouraged me to um, maybe start with volunteering just to see how I feel about people, if it's the part that I would like to take a journey into. And for over four years now, I've been doing volunteering work in care residents and care home, just, you know, providing fun activities for the elderly and going out to them to visit, you know, like garden park and museum. And it's been it's been great because now I realize, okay, I'm doing the right thing. You know, this is something I would like to explore more and see how it plans out. And during the corona, COVID, and one morning, and I thought to myself, I'm doing my master's. So I actually made that decision less than two days. And then I, I applied to Brunel and and that's how everything came about. And so far, I'm enjoying the, the you know the lectures and finding out more in terms of how to help others and making you know the society a better place. So that's where we are right now.
3: <laughs> Thank you. Joe. Oh yeah, so um My name's Joe. I was a teaching assistant a long time ago in a special educational needs school. And uh, that was kind of a a job that really resonated with me. I've I've been working in in various industries since then. That was about 20 years ago. Similarly to Rashida, I've got two small children. And again, that kind of made me think about what I wanted to do, uh, really. I mean, I felt like I was was left it a bit late, but um, I started thinking about becoming a social worker my mum trained as a social worker a long time ago and she's a family therapist and yeah it it, it took me a bit of a longer time to think about it but then when I when I kept revisiting it it really felt like the right thing for me to do I applied to Brunel and they had me so there you go I'm I'm very very pleased I'm really enjoying the course I already feel like it's one of the best decisions I've made so there you go
0: thank you never too late (laughs) Right. My first
2: question is what inspired you to write this book? And before you ask, answer the question, can I just say to you, your book is really amazing.
1: Wow. That's a really good place to start with the questioning about why I wrote the book and if I'm really being honest it was because I was asked to you know I think that's probably the um, the child in me going well they made me um, <laughs> they didn't make me but to be to be fair um, I was approached to write the book um, but I felt there was a book there was there was there were at least some chapters of that book existing in my head anyway through my experiences through my own practice Um, through what I'd been reading, through some of the research I've done, through some of my other writing. Um, And although the book in my head was anti-racist practice, when I was asked to write about anti-oppressive practice, I felt, well, yeah, okay, Um, I could do that. Um, And so I was asked to write it and I guess I could have said no. So I think that's the point at which you want to kind of hear the rest. So why did I agree to write it, I guess? Um, I think there's still a lot to say in this area and I don't think that the book has done it any justice. Um, I, well, I, think, I think it's made a contribution I don't think it's done it completely because as you will remember from the from what you read the 15 chapters and I have attempted in those chapters to kind of identify the key themes for me that I felt would be useful for students so I think in terms of, of um, further work there is further work to be done in this area but I was really keen to have something in one place Um, and hopefully you will note from the way I write that my writing's not complex. My writing's not complex, and I pretty much write the way I speak, and I have found that over the years that tends to appeal to certain groups of students. Of course, we have students who are way beyond that book and may decide that it's way too easy for them, but in order for us to actually um, seriously seriously utilize and use some of the things that we read in the book. We need it to be explained in ways that, are, that, that make it easy to, to, to grasp. And so I put it together because I think, A, there was a need. Um, clearly, Learning Matters had said, you know, there's a need for this, this book. And I, I agreed when I did my own literature review around what's out there, what's missing. I also recognized that because the nature of the world is such that it's changing so rapidly, no book can ever be up to date. So, as you can see, even though I started it way back two and a bit years ago, um, it went on that long um, and finally included George Floyd and COVID. And so, by the time that book's written and out there, I bet there's a lot more that we could be writing about in terms of um, oppression, discrimination, social work more broadly. So, I was pushed to write it because I think that over the years, I, I I've built a real pool of things to say. And maybe it was wonderful that I managed to put them into one book. Mm.
2: And, and also um, from the book, is there anything that, you know, you experience yourself?
1: Yeah, Rashida, I think the other thing that's really important for us as, as social workers and for the social workers listening is obviously our use of self and our ability to kind of reflect on our own experiences and where that's taken us what our experiences have taught us about life, about ourselves, about the world, about social work. And so, yes, there were some really deep seated and painful incidents that I think could have come into the book. But, you know, you have to kind of balance it out with this is not an autobiography, nor is it my therapy. But that said, there were still opportunities for me to share some of those. And I think the notable one for me, and you may remember it is around um, the white man who walked into my office and said my name sounded like a piece of machinery and each time I say it I feel literally I feel the pain I feel the pain of that comment I feel the pain of the statement I feel that otherness just really looking down at me yes so yet my name ain't Jane Smith but my name is my identity And for anyone to suggest that it sounded like a piece of machinery and not keep it in their head, but to to go that next step as to share it. And might I add, share it in my space. So that was my office. And whilst I didn't pay for the university office, it was given to me because I am providing a service for the university. So nobody um, deserves to have been treated the way I was on that day. And he proceeded to invite my white colleague to join him in the laughter, which she didn't. So I think that particular incident really does remind me of the role of social workers, but also do we stand by and watch people experience these levels of discrimination and oppression, or do we do something about those things? And mm. for the number of young people and children that we might work with who feel different already, um, then a reference to a name, what does that do to their identity? Um, I've had students in the past who have gone and changed their names by deed poll because they said, look, I've shortened it as many times as people want, but still I'm getting people say it this way, make fun of it. And the one that absolutely got to me was when a student changed it by deed poll, came back to university after holidays and said, I've changed my name. So that incident I felt was really, it was just spot on for the book. And it's also important for us to think about people's um, service users' lives and that when a service user is telling you their story and their identity, that actually they're telling you those particular bits for a reason. And so it's not, not, it shouldn't be our role to kind of hurry them along with a story because you want to get to the bits that you're interested in because those stories, those experiences have shaped them and have influenced where they are today and why perhaps you're visiting. So Mm. I believe that it was a really useful um, reflection. And the fact that it still hurt, (laughs) you know, (laughs) years later, um, does really mean that I haven't gotten over it. And, And I think linked to that was my comment around context matters, because... I'm not blowing my own trumpet. Obviously, it's my, it's my, I'm married. So it's my marital, it's my husband's name, surname. But that name in my home country of Ghana, people Mm -hmm. look twice, people turn twice to check Mm -hmm. out because the name's well known. But in the absence of that context, in my office at the university, you know, mm-hmm. somebody walks in and then points to your name and proceeds to say that. So I think for for me, it's around let's remember stereotyping. Let's 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 try to avoid othering people by suggesting, well, my name's the kind of standard name. Yours is the one that's different, and actually, it sounds doesn't sound like a name. Um, mm-hmm. It sounds like a piece of machinery. So I know that's a long winded answer to your question, no, but I really no,
2: I am glad you you said that because I often in my name just to please people. And, and, I, and I'm glad you mentioned that. So thank you, you know, for actually being open up about this. And I would probably use that in my day-to-day life where when somebody can pronounce my name properly, you know, educate them and then tell them how to do it rather than shorten the name. Mm-hmm. So thank you. Um, I'm going to pass you on to uh, to Joe now. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, again, thanks very much for sharing that. The, the book is um, very approachable and really informative. I mean, we only just started um, our, our and i thought yeah very easy to digest very a lot of very very important questions yeah i really enjoyed reading it i'm just going to ask about the role of the social worker as a kind of force for empowerment and kind of you know that that kind of active role as somebody who's who wants to make a change in society and you do mention a lot in the book the definition of social work from the um international Federation of Social Workers yeah. um, and I'm looking up there because I've printed it out and I've stuck it on my wall from okay. I think from the first, um, the first week mm. I refer to it quite a lot and it is something it's one of the main reasons I, I kind of chose to come into this profession but we do talk a lot about, about the practical role of the social worker and, and how they're perceived in society as in a negative light a lot of the time so I just wanted your opinion on on kind of how should we should should we be striving for that and should it be something that we think is practically achievable really kind of making that those bigger changes in society
1: thanks joe I think I'll start by saying yes I absolutely believe that um the role of the social worker must and should include one of activism um, one of seeking to make changes, but I'm here. I'm not talking about huge and humongous kind of, you know, um, rewriting the world constitution kind of things. But certainly we can make contributions to elements of law, elements of policy that then impact on larger populations and larger groups. And so, I mean, got your students, Yohai's a researcher. So research that we do regardless of whether we're we're, um, investigating one person or a group or or, or society, um, the findings are important for those sorts of changes. So yes, everyone can can enable change in their own way. But we start, I think, as social workers, we start by looking within our own, you know, inward, let's look within our families, let's look within our own communities. And so people already come to social work with a kind of sense of what it is they want to achieve, whether that's, oh, I worked with youth justice and I saw a lot of young people getting themselves into trouble. I really, I was nearly there myself, but I kind of know how I got out of it. I wish I could support young people to take a different path. Um, other people say, well, you know, um, in my home or in my family, my community, we have I have experience of uh, mental ill health or domestic abuse. So, you know, people generally come to these, these professions a profession like social work with some of that. When we talk about making the changes, like I say, it can come from research and it, they can come from the evidence that we, 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 we pick up. But actually what's also really important are those daily, um, I want to call them unoffic- unofficial, uh, informal chats that we have with our mm-hmm. friends, chats that we have with the neighbour, um, the neighbour who tells you that, um, mm-hmm. did you realise that number five down the road there's a black man that's moved in? Okay, that's a casual yeah. chat of your house um and your response might make or break um your neighbor's view your response might encourage it by saying yeah I know right yeah I didn't buy you it's a bit it's a bit unfair whatever Mm -hmm. um alternatively um you might say well I'm not sure what you mean I'm not sure how you Mm mean um and through that dialogue um you may embarrass your 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 neighbor into thinking oh gosh I'm never going to speak to Joe like that again you know he certainly (laughs) wasn't with me on that one or alternatively they'll learn from it and go and say I put my foot in it with Joe today I made a Mm. comment that he totally disagreed with and in hindsight I agree and so that kind those kind of subtle learning points and opportunities are there for us everywhere and it it when you it's almost I almost want to say sometimes you can recognize a social worker by some of these things. Mm. Um, and certainly when I have back in the day, when I've been to my son's school, um, you know, and I've, or I've been in meetings, people would ask me, are you a social worker? Um, and it based on the fact that um, I came at things from a very different perspective. So I think we can, we are there as activists. And I know that pe- people are not necessarily comfortable with the activism role and that they, they want to do the, the stand not the standard they want to do the procedural stuff go in see a family write my case notes hand them over move the family on end of and there are other people who say nah um, i'm experiencing too many of these i think that there's there's a, there's an opportunity here to make some other kinds of changes so Yes, the international definition is absolutely brilliant because it tells us that one of our roles is around liberate the liberation of people, emancipatory social work. As, uh, there was a mo- module we used to teach called emancipatory social work. And it was just getting people to kind of come out of their shell and go, yeah, now I get it. Now I get why um, I shouldn't be telling my daughter, oh, you know, all that science stuff yeah. is for boys. Yeah, yeah you don't want to do science. You want to go off and do something else. I get why... Um, social workers are particularly now within COVID and within George Floyd, I get why a lot of the work we're doing is around that. And, and, and there will be some people who say we're not doing enough or we haven't done enough in response to George Floyd in terms of a national or international yeah. statement and that there are some people who are wary of, 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 you know, getting into those conversations. But I believe that the majority of social workers have that um, overall social change agenda um and it's about the approach, the different approaches that people use to get there
3: mm. yeah i mean it's really interesting actually because we've been touching on microaggressions um and yesterday we had a, a in our sociology module a, a conversation about about race and ethnicity which is really everybody really engaged with it and enjoyed enjoyed it and it did I was so pleased that I've been reading your book recently because it's so relevant to lots of the stuff we've been we've been talking about various sections in the book talk about the obvious need for um anti-oppressive practice to be integrated into learning materials um for for social work students um and as I said we've only just started uh, but I did notice that across all of the modules we we have been touching on it quite a lot in this course and and I was just wondering whether or not you thought that might be almost a, and, I, and Johan I'm sure can comment on this as a, as a kind of direct response to these kind of situations that have, that have been emerging recently uh, and whether or not you know you you're aware that there has been a change not more recently because uh, uh, obviously I'm coming at it uh, you know from a novice, yeah. novice perspective yeah yeah
1: well um Joe, I, I would Start by saying congratulations to Brunel. Then um, they seem to probably be one of the fewer mm. universities that are uh, that have managed to integrate issues of of diversity, quality, so on, and uh, anti-oppressive practice into their curriculum to the extent that you describe. Mm. Um, <laughs> my experience uh, certainly mm. doesn't mirror what you are suggesting, and in fact. Um, more recently, some training that I've been delivering to qualified social workers who've been on the job um, will tell me that we did one session on anti practice on our program four years ago, three years ago, two years ago. Um, and I believe that purely because of where I'm coming from. I, I can see Yohai nodding. So I guess it's, you know, so you guys are really, really lucky. I can also say that apart from my own universities that I was external examiner to a few others and that was a consistent pattern that I picked up and kept saying this course was great, but there was little talked about in terms of um, uh, diversity, there was little um, reference to people from different faith groups and so the nine protective characteristics was very little brought up there um, and so a lot of programs were hoping to, to improve things. With George Floyd, I think that we've had—I've seen certainly—an unprecedented um, shift in students' own thinking, and I think there are a lot of students out there who are using the opportunity to tell their curriculum teams, "Hey, <laughs> we need a bit yeah. more of this." Or alternatively, the curriculum teams are finding out on Twitter that their students are saying that you know there's not enough of this happening at my university, so. Um, certainly, um, at the moment, some of the work I'm doing involves particular students at particular universities, and you would be surprised which universities because you you wouldn't know. Um, but they are saying things like um, we have to commission out particular pieces because maybe um, colleagues don't feel able to teach, um, uh, deliver this content. Um, We're having to bring external speakers in or we're having to try and um, revamp. And there's a lot of um, revamping of courses going on as we speak um, in line with. George Floyd in line with many other um, things, COVID and so on, that people are beginning to think about this more. So Joe, I would say you and Rashidat and everyone else in your university, absolutely lu- lucky to have this on your course. Um, it's not it's not the usual and I think yeah, you yeah. and I will agree. Mm.
3: Okay, thank you. Yeah.
2: Right, um, the next question you mentioned um, about 71.7% of social workers in the UK are white British. What can be done to increase the representation of minority ethnic community in social work, given their overrepresentation in the criminal justice and system of social work?
1: Yeah. Okay. I think trying to remember when it was now because my PhD was around this. So um, the GSCC. So before the HCPC and now the. Social Work England we had what we call the GSCC which was the General Social Care Council and they were our regulatory body at the time. The GSCC was absolutely brilliant at providing statistics um, about progression through social work programs in terms of um, gender ethnicity and race ability disability all of all of the, the characteristics in terms of diversity and successively two three years in succession the GSCC's research reported that actually Black students and Black African students in particular um, were the second highest number going into social work. So actually, it's not about the going in or the beginning of the course. It's about the end, the end Mm. game. It's about um, progression through the course and then attainment at the other side. And that was the difficulty. So in a lot of ways, some of my research, my, my PhD and some of my research since then has looked at how can we support black and other minority students mm-hmm. to not just come into social work and be kicked out the year the next year, but how can we get them to come mm-hmm. in and progress mm-hmm. and qualify um, like, you know, like the majority white pair. So I don't, I'm not disagreeing that we don't, we, 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 we could do with some more um, diversity in social work, but they are coming in, the diversity is happening. At the, at the beginning, we're not getting the progression and the, the, the completion rate.
0: Can you tell us something about the reasons? Okay.
1: Yeah. So, Johar, my, my PhD, by the time I was doing the PhD, the research had suggested that, like I say, high numbers of black students were joining the program, but they weren't graduating or they were graduating later and with poorer degree outcomes. So, two, one, oh, sorry, third class and a pass and a two, two, two. Um, and then, if, if at masters, then it was a pass. Um, and research further indicated that placements were where the issue um, kind of—that's <laughs> where it came from. The whole thing about Black students not doing well in, 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 in university on social work programs was around placements. So mm. my my PhD research was specifically about that. Now, I didn't do the whole BAME, and I've stopped using BAME. Um, mm. I use Black, and then I qualify. You know, whichever. So I didn't use the whole, I didn't go to the whole broad extent of looking at all Black um, groups. Mm. I looked specifically at Black African because within my university, the ones that were failing on placement were Black African. So I decided that I was going to do this study. Mm. Yohai's asking for the reason. So um, certainly my research picked up the presence of racism, um, the presence of racism, stereotyping. Um, um, lack of lack of lack of faith or lack of um, lack of belief in students' abilities mm. okay um, measuring using um the same tool um, rather than a variety of tools that may that, that could have um shown the strengths in some of the black students that were on placement and in some of my other training elsewhere you will see. Typical examples of that. But also, um, there was a sense that for a lot of the the, uh, practice educators that were implicated in my study, it was around things like, um, you know, labelling a certain behaviour of waiting to be invited, you know, to do work, Mm labelling that as the student being work shy, lazy, refusing to kind of budge um, in comparison to a white student who turned up and was saying, yeah, I'll take that case. Can I take that case? Can I go out with you? And so it was a different kind of different approaches to learning weren't mm-hmm. taken um, taken seriously. And finally, because practice learning is quite, um, it's a sub- it's more subjective sometimes than the, the university systems of exams and so on and exams and assignments will go through different Um, QA processes so they might have a second marker uh, a moderator it might go to an external committee so there's different (laughs) checks and balances that would say oh are you sure that student should fail you know there's different ways placement to be fair and rightly so we rely on the practice educator and perhaps with a discussion with the university tutor and or the team manager and we found that there was a disproportionate number of uh, white uh practice educators working with Black students. Some of of the Black students were like day 90 of their placement and the practice educator didn't know their name. Oh, wow. Yes, yes. Mm. The student, the student. And that's where my whole kind of relationship building and Mandela stuff comes in. But that's probably for another day or a bit later. But um, so, yes, so adding to these, there were also real concerns that a lot of the Black students, particularly female Black students of African origin, were juggling multiple balls so there were there were parents at home there were partners grandparents they had to work um and so there was so much going on for them that you couldn't expect them to easily say yeah I'll do I'll work on that case for two hours extra today when really what they needed to do was go home and be with the family so we had we, th- there was that and I use critical race theory to kind of understand that and there was of course the treading on eggshells where the black students did not challenge or did not feel able to challenge when they felt they were treated badly and or were failing they would look kind of just like you know what I'm not arguing this is my placement I need the grade and so the history and other research tells you that this is not specific to social work in nursing it was the same in medicine it was the same so all the kind of professions with a practice element the black students seem to be failing the practice element and not the academic one at university so there's something there about those assessment processes I think yeah,
2: because I don't know what can be done. Maybe if during, the, maybe there's some sort of a a, a planning, a development, sort of like a you know assessment to evaluate every week. Do you think something like that will help? Because obviously you need to monitor how you're doing. You know, if you're in in a placement and having some sort of like a one to one. I know there's not enough time for days. I don't know how placement is going to be. Maybe like I don't know, Fridays have like a one to one with your. You but, know, whoever's yeah. working with you to see what what is lacking, what you've done, what you need to improve on. Do you think see, maybe something like
1: this could help? Uh, uh, absolutely. I mean, I think one of the things that um, I recommended at the end of that study was that practice educators who where there was evidence of any form of oppression, discrimination, I recommended that they be sent, they be hauled to um, the GSCC or the H- the H- sorry the HCPC, because. Um, mm-hmm. They later on, for example, there was one case where later on the practice educator was found to have all the people that had failed that she had worked with were black none of her white students had ever failed. So, but that's hindsight then, that's after six, seven people have failed. So I think there's ways of, of, of working with practice educators who are generally well-meaning, and I do a lot of work with practice educators around um, creating and developing uh, an anti-oppressive practice learning environment. So that's one of my areas of, of, of work. But practically, yes, supervision is helpful, but also understanding that students learn in different ways yeah. Student exp- express their learning in different ways. So if you've got a student who um, is, for example, struggling with reflection, then yes, reflection should be on the list about, okay, go and read these resources. Let's practice reflection and so on and so forth. And I think that their practice educators on the whole are well-meaning, but don't forget they are also gatekeepers. They're gatekeeping and rightly so. They, we don't want the wrong people in social work, but are we actually keeping... Um, are we actually keeping yeah black people out Mm. absolutely yes we um my 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 research picked that up as well which is the definition of professionalism I mean to a point where one student who was wearing national you know traditional clothes Mm. um you know everyone she came in and everyone was staring at her so what did we miss what did we miss was it Diwali and she's like I'm from Nigeria you know (laughs) (laughs) you know and 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 the, the the implication was Whatever it was, you shouldn't be wearing this today. And, and, and the conversation then went to, you need to dress professionally. I'm responding to the, the, the chat question. You should, you know, and she said, well, what does that look like? Because my colleague next door has a nose piercing, a belly piercing, all the piercings, and we can see that through her clothing that's all right. So then you, you pit students against each other, which becomes Mm -hmm. terribly unfair. Um, And so, yes, we had the unprofessional bit. We had the black students shout, they're aggressive because as you can see, I'm sitting way millions of miles from you, but I'm, you know, flapping my hands around because Mm -hmm. we're animated in the way we speak. And so um, those kinds of of, of situations really do demand um, a different level of, of, of understanding, empathy Mm -hmm. and, let's not rush to judgment let's not rush to that judgment and that final failing point point. Right. and some practice ed- educators could not actually pinpoint why the student was failing mm. it's like oh I get a sense mm, there's something not quite right well tell me what it is mm. it can't be hanging on the something not quite right what is the something that's evidence not the mm, my big toe says you know um right. I have a feeling in my gut yeah great but now produce the evidence. So I think the, 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 um, the strategy here is once we adopt a, a holistic understanding of anti-oppressive practice, it has to be replicated in all sectors of our training, all sectors of our work, so that um, all the people that we work with, service users, practice educators, on-site supervisors, agency organizers, everybody is singing from the same hymn sheet about what it is to remain anti-oppressive.
2: All right. And um, before I pass you on to Joe, I want to ask you this question. And this is based on things I've been saying lately. How can we improve the way the society sees social work? Because they see social workers as a threat where they're here to, you know, destroy our family. And I mean, we've only started learning about social work since um, uh, September. And mm-hmm. all I've been learning so far is how, we need to better the society, how we need to improve people's lives, how we need to make sure everyone is heard and sane and, you know, provide the right, mm-hmm. right to the uh, service user, you know, promote social justice, but the society itself sees social workers as mm-hmm. people that are coming to invade yeah. their, their yeah. life, which actually upset, u- upset me yesterday because I'm like, I'm here wanting to better the society, but I mean, the society itself, mean. Mm. is already <laughs> against me so what yeah. can be done
1: yeah. um i think that maybe by virtue of our profession <laughs> as social workers we're not good at saying what we do well mm. we're not good at advertising the really positive work that we do and so um to borrow a term that you won't want me to 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 use um the lamestream media <laughs> yeah Sorry, um, I just had to get that in there. Uh, and the fake news would 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 have you believe that we're all here for, um, you know, baby snatching and and and, yes. and getting people into trouble. Social work needs to get better at selling itself. Mm.
2: Social
1: Perhaps workers' from
2: education, you know, from uni.
1: Yes, training. social workers. We need to be better at at, at that. So community events where. There's no baby snatching conversation going on. It's mm. about how um what social workers actually do um mm. the kinds of lives that they 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 intervene in the kinds of outcomes that we have and by saying to people, did you know five six years ago we had x number of children doing X and now that has moved along' And sometimes, depending on which um uh community group you come from, certainly um in my my some of my Ghanaian community group people um never really used to think that um we had anything to do with social services and that was a, you know, that was for the white people who you know, don't look after the children who are drinking a lot and who, so we had our own assumptions about that. But we said, well, it's not just that. What about the faith-based abuse? And what about the home alone at six when the child is six years old? Oh, you mean, yes, we can't do that. Yeah, those are the kinds of conversations. But it's more, it's geared at us showcasing some good practice and also showing here that actually we're working with you, not against you. And so um, ensuring that, societies communities the world out there sees the work that we're doing and um, that we are better at selling ourselves and that is why sometimes when I do research like this and I get the findings I put my head in my my hand my head in my hands because I'm like oh not another set of bad news. because I I really want some positive representation unfortunately as the world is and because I, I, I keep writing around these things I'm currently writing I've done the research I'm writing up Um, about the experiences of black social workers during COVID. And, you know, again, you're like, oh, I don't don't want to be the bearer of bad news. Okay. Um, So not that, but in terms of the general work that we do in COVID, what we're doing, um, keeping all these children safe, county lines, drugs, mental health, all the areas that you can think about, we need to be able to showcase that work a bit better than I think we currently do. And when there is a Government paper or a or a news article that's, that paints us in bad light. A rejoinder, you know, somebody really standing up for social work and going, "Hang on a minute, what you've just described there is completely out of context or is mm-hmm. really unfair. This is the real situation." And I think that would be that would be a really good way to um, change the image. And mm-hmm. apart from what you can do in your own community with your yes. faith groups, with your family, um, and they will listen to you because they trust you. And so, yes. coming from that perspective um would be good. Thank
3: you. Thank you. Okay. Cool. Okay yeah, so um I I thought that was all really interesting. It reminded me of something one of our um fellow students mentioned in our in our foundations uh, sorry our, our um law module and she said oh is there any can you point us in the direction of any um kind of positive news and positive results of social work interaction so uh, social work intervention and she said it doesn't really exist because you know she said the best thing that you can do is 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 to congratulate each other and yourselves when you do a job well done but normally when the job's done well it stops it's not spoken about after that and you just move on to the next thing and i was like oh that's a bit sad yeah. so yeah you know i guess we'll have to do our best to to champion our own cause as we move forward mm-hmm. um I just wanted to go back then to what you were saying about placements. It, it's, I mean, if for want of a better word, very disappointing to to kind of hear that because, I guess, the, as you said, they they are the gatekeepers, but they're also the people that mm. are supposed to be teaching us how to how to behave as social workers moving forward. And you know, I mean, I, I suppose, yeah, it's just it's a, it, it's 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 a bit disappointing. Um, and hopefully, you know, th- things things we can change things and. I really feel there is a there is quite a, a sense of optimism in our cohort at the moment, which yeah, is which is nice considering <laughs> the times we find ourselves in. Yeah. Um. But it did make me think of what you refer to a lot uh, in your book about intersectionality and um, and the fact that um you know that that kind of layering of of things um that people might not be aware of. Mm. And, and when you were talking about um mm. black students being Kind of negatively targeted, even even um, subconsciously, or, or kind of maybe unintentionally in their placements. Yeah. Um, and I, I just thought the the way that that's a- applicable to all of the sections in your book was really really um, interesting. Uh, I just wondered if you could kind of just for for people who are going to be listening to the to the podcast, kind of give a, a very brief overview of intersectionality and why it's so mm-hmm. so important to bear in mm-hmm. mind in practice. Okay.
1: Yeah. Um do you know what it's one of the words that I absolutely love. I'm not sure what we did before the word. <laughs> I might remind me. I'm not sure what we what we did before certainly before I recognized that this came into into more of our social work parlance because it's come from law and through uh Kimberly Crenshaw and and black feminism and so on. But before then I can't remember how we we we, we <laughs> what we did and how we explained it. But absolutely um intersectionality is around recognizing that none of us um, have just one social identity and that we have the multitude of of, um, identities that we have overlap and interplay and therefore um, can either make things really, really bad or really, really good, depending on where you sit. So I know the usual one that people, people here are, if you're white middle-class male, then, you know, great. Um, and if you're, <laughs> and if you're, you're black female, um, you know, working class, then, you know, but it's not as, I don't think it's as clear cut as that. I think that yeah. sometimes even, to, so intersectionality is about all those social identities combining to make you who you are. Now, it may be that um, I go into a placement as a black woman. I go into a um, a placement that is, let's say it's a black um. Uh, advocacy organization okay so in that regard my blackness is probably positive it's a good thing we're all black that's wonderful so maybe in that regard I won't get racism in you know but if it's an all-male black establishment organization and I'm the only female what I might get is sexism and so it's then down to myself and obviously everyone else to recognize that Oh, they won't. Oh, Prosper's fine in that organisation. You know, it's a black it's a black led organisation. Yeah, but did you? The last time I checked, she was the only female, and so there's ways, or she was, um, she was the only straight woman. You know, so or, or only disabled woman, and so on and so forth. And so we have to think about these um multiple layers, and we, that's what that's what makes social work assessments that unique. And that is why I don't think that when social workers go into a ha- home and they're out in 20 minutes, I'm not ever sure that they've done anything but drink a cup of tea and come out. I oh, <laughs> going that cup of tea, but you know what I mean. Um, I feel that you have to unpick those areas of the identity, those social identities and how those have interacted to create that unique opportunity or experience for that person. Mm. And so um, no good going out for an assessment and noting that the family that you've gone to see are a traveller family and there's six people in the family and mum and dad and that's it, you know. Um, How has their traveller status impacted on the experience they're getting where they are? How do the various gender Um, uh, differences play out within their family and within the wider community so Mm -hmm. intersectionality what I try to do in the book was say that this is something that I want every social worker to have on the kind of at the tip of their tongues when they're talking and thinking about social work Um, especially when you're doing your reflective logs as a student and saying yeah so what was different when I went into that family okay so I'm a black woman and I went in to see a white family Surely the first thing that I should be thinking about was how did my race or their race, how did our differences in that regard, ethnicity, how did that impact or how how did I take that into account in my assessment? Um, so that's the you know, that's the thing. I'm probably much younger than the, the family I went to see. How does age intersect? Um, being black, being younger than the family that I went in to see. So once we start understanding the complexities of um, intersectionality, I think social workers will stop completing assessments in 20 minutes. And no, no disrespect to any social workers. I know they don't complete, <laughs> complete assessments in 20 minutes. But when you often hear about I have 35 cases, I can't help but think you don't have enough time to work on 35, with 35 families. Therefore, this is 20 minutes per family. Yeah, a week if they're lucky, a month if they're not. And so once we start unpicking those layers of intersectionality, we recognize that no two people are ever the same full stop. And that's an old cliche, but I will just repeat it so um, that we're kind of aware. The whole idea of social class as well, people seem to kind of drop that along the line um, or make assumptions based on employment and what I often say to people is yeah it's all right saying um, both parents are in employment full stop but what exactly are they bringing home mm. <laughs> employment just stating that they their employment yeah might seem you know that they've got um, an advantage of being in employment when maybe some others are not but what exactly does being in employment mean for that family Are they bringing home enough to sustain the family or do they still need support from you? And by saying they are in um, employment, does that immediately write them off as not needing support, financial support from your organization? So again, that buys and feeds into some of the stereotypes that then proceed. Oh, it's a two, it's a two, um, a two worker family. Okay. Both parents are working, but lots of debt, lots of difficulties and so on and so forth. So my kind of kind of take a throw away with with intersectionalities the fact that we although we will look at some of these things as you know individually we have to look at the whole as well so yes the black female middle-aged middle-class woman experiencing x and so that that helps us with the way we assess and helps us to recognize that we can't say oh yeah we're not being racist but then turn around and be sexist (laughs) <laughs> because the experience for the person receiving it is the same. Whether you're being racist to me or sexist to me, I still feel oppressed or discriminated against. So understanding uh, intersectionality helps us manage um, oppression um, or helps us work anti-oppressively, but helps us manage our understanding of, of, of oppression mm-hmm. at the different levels.
3: Okay. So, yeah, that kind of macro-level approach is something we've been learning about a lot in terms of... Um, kind of systems theory and and, and and all that kind of thing. But one thing um, that I couldn't help kind of picking up, and it's because we've just been doing a sociology paper, <laughs> okay. um, is that there seems to be a lot of kind of sociological theory in the way or kind of influencing uh, your, your perspective. And I, I just wondered how important that perspective was uh, to you, essentially.
1: Yeah, um, my minor was in sociology, so that's probably one of the things. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, I I believe that you know, social work, as you know, borrows from everywhere, don't we? We borrow from yeah. from from philosophy and um, art, um, science, psychology, sociology, and I believe that all of these. Um, all of these whilst kind of distinct and unique um, specialisms and areas, I believe they all kind of make up who we are as, as, Mm. as, as people. Um, But more importantly, we're all, we're social beings. Yeah. Um, We are social beings and taking away, not, not disrespecting the fact that there are some people through particular illnesses and maybe mental health want to be, you know, on their own and perhaps don't show um, that they need people in the same way we all do. We are social beings and, and um, we thrive on our interaction with our environment and, and the environment is not just the trees and, the, you know, and the pets, but also the people around us. Mm-hmm. And if we don't, if we're not able to understand those social, the social etiquette, just generally when you walk into a room and your face lights up and you smile and you say hello and you um, introduce yourself. If we're not able to understand those kind of um, uh, that etiquette, then we're not really going anywhere in terms of trying to to be part of the system, be part of the world, be part of our communities. And I think for social workers, and I've said this to students who turn up and go, "I don't really like to talk, and I'm really shy, and I don't." And I'm like, "Yeah, give it a couple of weeks. You'll be fine." <laughs> because you know you will be fine because you will be um, spending your time learning about the best strategies and ways to engage with people not just on a one-off but kind of regular engagement ongoing engagement how to begin relationships how to maintain them and invariably when you come out how to end relationships with service users so these are all kind of part of part and parcel of that but also being um, kind of a social being we recognize we we are we we have empathy we recognize other people's pain Mm. we recognize other people's difficulties we empathize with other people's situations and if we're not able to do that then the job's not going to be greatly done because when a family's saying to you i have literally no food for my family you're not going to go yeah right next question you're going to have to stop that emotion that that's going to have to stop you there to go please tell me a bit more about that so Mm. when was the last time you had a hot meal? Um, okay, let's have a look at the cupboards. What is it we can do to help? I'll organize this, that, and the other. If you don't have those um, skills and you're not empathetic, you'll just listen to the... Com- it will be a com- typical conversation and you'll be out the door. You'd have left no intervention whatsoever and, and you'll, you'll be gone. In addition to that, sometimes with particular families, the relationship that you have with them is the intervention. Some yeah. of them are so lonely... And and uh, or, or or perceive themselves as not being able to talk to anyone except you. So just you, by you being there, and turning up for that one hour a week visit, is the intervention. Mm. You actually don't need to do much else. You know they've been able to talk to you about stuff. They've run stuff by you. They've rang up Rashida. Can I just talk to you for five minutes? I've got this concern about my son. Yep, yeah, that's fine. Tell me about it. Yep, yeah, you're doing right thing. So and so, and that's it. So for 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 people um that in, that that relationship can be the intervention and I keep saying to social workers sometimes you don't have to do too much <laughs> sometimes you really don't have to do um too much depending on the situation just being there for the service user ensuring that your the etiquette's right the skills are right the knowledge base is right and your language is right mm. really does take things um in the right direction okay well, thank
2: you right um I know we're running out of time but there's one Question: I would like to ask you, um, it, is there any way with the pandemic right now, what can be taken to our advantages as a social work, where we're more valued, perhaps you know things that are more structured for future, you know, referencing?
1: Okay. Um, I think with the pandemic, because it's new, we're all kind of experiencing it together. We're all learning about it together. I do know that academics like us are learning different ways of delivering our material. Mm. Um, I think placements are learning different ways of delivering placements. But if you're talking about um, what social workers can take away from the pandemic, I think yeah. what, 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 we, what we can first of all try and remember is that in this pandemic, we have been the ones still on the front line, okay? We are the ones who can't say, well, I don't think I can see that service user, I don't think that person needs to be seen. I think that person's all right. I think that what we have learned to do in the pandemic is to find different ways of engaging with people, but also recognising that the, the pandemic has given extra vulnerability to particular groups. So our anti-oppressive work continues when we find out that people people from particular um, um, ethnic groups have um, are experiencing or, or um, are becoming you know, very ill with, with 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 COVID. I think we're beginning to understand that as practitioners, then we can um, support families in different ways. We can offer advice in different ways, and we can help people stay calm during this. this you know, the, the the pandemic. I think social work is going going to a good place in terms of the. Um, Uh, the sort of the american system is that they're they're used to working through hurricanes and natural disasters in parts of africa and asia social workers do that we've been lucky in the west we've been lucky in england in in, in the uk where we haven't had a natural disaster that needed that we haven't had until now a pandemic so i think that it's teaching social work in the uk very different roles of the social worker and telling us that actually you're not just training to work specifically with a local authority in a team but you're Mm. also there as an as community member um, engaging with people who are experiencing COVID in um, in adverse ways or we all are but you know the ones who might be um, a bit more disadvantaged.
0: If we already uh, mentioned COVID you earlier mentioned a study that you are Mm. writing up now is this something that you're happy to share with
1: us? Okay Um, yeah sure Um, so the study was looking at the experiences of social work, black social work students on placement during COVID. Um, and during the conversation with students or the the, the interviews, I realised, well, okay, I need to do the full thing. So let me talk to practitioners as well, because practitioners, why aren't you talking to us? I can tell you, because I shared this at the recent Community Care Live um, conference, for social work practitioners, um, there were I'll, t- I'll tell you about one particular example that might bring it all there was one that really upset me um a participant who was telling me about her experiences of her manager's um misinterpret interpretation or interpretation of shielding and the story goes a bit like this um so I'm going to use Rashida so Rashida um you you want to uh you asking for permission to shield mm, but you've told me that your family live in Zimbabwe and so it's like yeah so yeah so there's no grounds for shielding but Joe, I know that your family live in Lincolnshire so yeah you're right you can you can shield you don't need to come into the office <laughs> it was literally that kind of conversation by the manager and that really did get to me and because um if you, you don't have to strip it down. I'm not even going to say I'm stripping it down because I'm talking to you who know. When I'm talking to other people outside of this, I might explain it a bit more, but you know exactly what's going on in that conversation. How did Zimbabwe come into the conversation? Who defines shielding as if your family live in Zimbabwe, then don't shield? Um, why is there the othering of Rashidat? As opposed to Joe? Why is it because Joe's family are in Lincolnshire, he can shield and I can't? What about my children? What about Rashidit's children? What about her, the, the other networks that she has? And so, true to the manager's um, definition or interpretation, Joe was allowed to shield and Rashid was not. What, which meant that Joe handed all, over all his cases to Rashid and said, Here you go, see ya, bye. And off he went. He was going to work from home shielding because his family his um, his grandmother and older people lived in in, in Lincolnshire and Rashid lived in 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 Zimbabwe she then ended up with all his cases and what he was doing was ringing her da- daily basis or so yeah how's how's <laughs> how so-and-so did you visit so-and-so you know and so the shift in man- because the manager because it come from the manager Joe obviously thought well actually now Rashid it's my assistant i passed by cases but I will ring her and check how it's going so I'm analyzing those kind of things it's actually nearly written up to be honest and then I have to see where I'm going to publish it but um, I did find that whether you want to call it a misinterpretation of the the guidelines um, or just their own interpretation there's always something underneath or certainly there were things underneath that didn't speak well to me so that was a big issue And the second issue was the fact that a lot of the Black um, practitioners also work independently, like agency workers. Therefore, taking time out during COVID to say, I'm not going to work, meant a loss of income. Um, And then when you dug deep, they said, you know, it's easier to go agency because when you're experiencing racism, two days and you're out of there. You don't need no three months notice where people can give you a hard time. Um or or you know, or you have to sign off sick, you can literally leave. So those kind of new those kind of um messages have come out of, of, of the papers that I'm writing at the moment. Um with students, social workers, it was slightly different in that they some of them didn't feel that um the rules were applied fairly to the between them and and, and white colleagues. And and sorry, we we they make these comparisons, not me, but they say things like, well. I was told I needed to stop my placement now um, because of COVID. And then I only had 15 days to go. And my colleague was told she could keep coming. And there I was thinking it's because I'm Black, I'm probably more, you know, more at risk and so on. But no risk assessment was done. So when I said, right, can we do the risk assessment so that I can see why you've asked me to stay at home? No, no, no. Um, the service users that work with... Jane Smith want her to keep working. Your service users say, that's fine. You don't need to be there. Which meant that Jane was able to finish her placement on time, whereas The ones that I was talking to needed to wait until things slowed down and then they would go and complete their placement. So, again, that differential treatment, they had some good experiences. So I'm not going to say it was all bad. But where they were bad, they were bad, bad. You know what I mean? Where they were bad, they were like, oh, not again. But where they were good, it was like, "Okay, great. Um, There's somebody there taking um, account of what's happening. So those are two examples of the COVID related experiences um, of of black, black and minority social workers. Great,
0: Thank you.
1: Mm.
3: OK, yeah, I'm just going to ask one more question, if that's OK. I, again, on that last point, it's just so, um, it's kind of surprising that in this field that we're going into, that that is going on to such an extent, you know, and I, it, I suppose that's that's why we're here to learn and, and, and make a difference. And and again, what, what Rashida was saying about the public perception of social workers in light of COVID, I really hope that that's something that we don't, forget about our, now that we're not clapping for NHS workers and all that kind of stuff, but mm. time will tell, I suppose. Um, I just wanted to touch on one one final thing, and uh, um, but it's to do with kind of the um, environmental crisis and, and the fact that that was very much in the forefront of everyone's minds um, last year, I suppose. And, and in terms of anti-oppressive practice and the fact that it's going to probably, you know, almost inevitably lead to more mass migration um, and kind of uh, bad experiences for uh, um, asylum seekers, uh, refugees coming into this country. I just wondered what your kind of take on on the possible impact for kind of social work practice of the environmental crisis moving forward might be and, and kind of how how important a part it's gonna play?
1: Again, I don't think it's an area that um, in the UK our universities in social work ch- touch on um extensively, although it's a serious, it's seriously kind of central area in America. American universities do touch, and some Canadian and actually some Australian ones touch on that. I guess if we're talking social justice generally we're talking about you know uh, allowing people to 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 live freely and live with clean air and you know maximize their their life chances through clean air clean water and so on then obviously we've got to be interested in what the what the environment does and what and, and what we do to the environment and and what we leave for the people that are coming behind us so I think there is a duty there on social workers to become more aware um, aware of that but also There's something about politics, you know, that's involved in all of this, because certainly we have um, United Nations level or international level groups. I don't know which what what they call the G this and the, you know, they have different groups that meet and discuss these things. And do we have a voice on those? And and this I'm asking a genuine question. Do we as social workers have voices? Do we have representatives sitting on those committees? I suspect we do. I I just don't know them. But those are the places where those discussions need to happen. And if it's something that you are um, uh, interested in, then by all means, um, seek out the researchers in this area, the, 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 the activists in this area and push it forward. And I just remember the way, um, um, I'll, I'll forget her name now, um, Greta, Was Greta Thornburg? The way she's been bashed around, I mean, it's just hmm. unbelievable the, the response to, to a decent level-headed conversation. And, and so... As I say, we're a, we, as social workers, we're in the business of leaving this world in a better place for the people that come after us, not a worse. And so if we can't do anything at all, we shouldn't make it worse. You know, if we feel we're, we're lame ducks and we can't do anything, let's just not do anything, but let's not make it worse. Let's not actively make it worse. So I would suggest that in terms of what social work can do in the UK, one, it needs to get onto our curriculum. It is, you know, people mention it based on their own kind of experience and, and interest, but I think we need to take this on board a bit more, and we need to connect to those global um, organisations that talk about um, what the world's going to be in fifty years, sixty, or whatever, and and how we can leave we can leave a decent world for for the generations after us. As I say, in light of our whole emancipation uh, or emancipatory. um um, underpinnings okay thanks
2: okay yeah do we have more time for one more question this is actually joe's question um it's about the mandela model uh structure and do you think you know with caseload at the moment well with everything going on will social workers actually have time to be able to actually use this process this is joe's question but i said
1: yeah. I'm not going to ask question, <laughs> okay so I, I i think that um making time is the very first thing we have to do as, as social workers i'm, I'm mm. really sorry as a student you will make time to study you will make time for your assignments if it means staying up till midnight if it means bribing the kids with mcdonald's for them to keep quiet <laughs> to stay quiet while you do your work we will find ways around getting our our, our school or university work in and our placements done um now, when we're at work, we we take a different attitude, and I've heard it. I've I've heard this for years. Where practitioners say, "I've got back-to-back meetings," and all I keep thinking about is, "Where's the time in between these meetings to reflect?" Okay, where's the time in between these meetings to think? Now, you must find the time um, to not just work on the case or with the case but you you must find the time to plan the case and think about the case so when I say make time with the the M of the Mandela model it could actually be in terms of supervision yes you've rushed around the whole week like a headless uh, chicken but actually when it's supervision you are there and you've asked your supervisor to give you two hours and not 15 minutes to really talk through things but also think about it this way when we used to have these um, – I don't know whether you have it in the London areas or where you live, but do you remember when you went to the GP and they said, sorry, you've only got five – you know, there was a slot. It's a five-minute slot. And not only was it five-minute slot, you could only talk about one illness. <laughs> so you said, you talked about your headache. Yeah. I live in Milton Keynes. I live in Milton Keynes. You talk about your headache, you go to talk about your nose ache, and they're like, no, sorry, book another appointment, come talk about your nose. I'm like, what if they're connected? In the same way as I would be upset with my GP – I feel that if we go into families with that kind of rigidity and not making the time, then we're setting ourselves up to, look, to, to, to fail because we're hearing part of the story, not the full one. And guess where the second, the part of the the next part of the story will be made? In our heads. You go mm. with half of it. You can't go back because you don't have time. So you make up the rest very quickly into what would appear to be a succinct story. Mm. Then. You're going, to get the, you're going to get the intervention and the analysis, ro- the analysis and intervention wrong because you didn't get the full picture. So if you don't make time at the beginning, you will make time at the end. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Somewhere along the line, something's got to give. And that might be in the case of, do you know what? I closed that case uh, manager, but literally within t- two weeks, the case is back because you rushed through it. So yeah. mm-hmm. absolutely making time to hear family stories, to hear families' own coping, how they've coped, how they may not have coped, what they want to try is important. Making time for ourselves to reflect on what we've heard is important. Making time to plan before we go out is important. Making time to feedback is important. So if we don't have time, we're doing the wrong job. And I, I never, ever want the GP who starts off the intervention with lovely to see you again mrs tedham you've got five minutes <laughs> like <laughs> 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 so, you know and 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 that's it so I, I i i i think that um as much as possible as practitioners we need to push some of this back to our organizations oh, we yeah. need to challenge some of these in in a positive way and say we are not doing a service to, you know we're not providing a, a an an excellent service if we have to rush in and out of family, uh, family circumstances, if we have to shorten meetings, if we have to cut phone calls in order to take the next phone call and the next phone call and the next phone call, you end up with five half conversations and not a complete one.
0: Great. Thank you very much. Thank one you. last question from me.
1: Sure. Sure. Yeah. Hi, go ahead.
0: And this is about the future. So what's now for you?
1: Really good question. Um, I guess, so we, we started off talking about the book. Now the book is out there, I'm, anytime somebody mentions the book in an email, I quickly read it to think, oh, I hope it's not a negative review. You know how you, you kind of keep keep panicking about what it might look like, the email might look like. I think wherever next social work issues take me, obviously along the lines that I've spent the last few years researching and learning, but also, I'm very keen to um, look at um, another bit of my interest is when social workers retire. That's another interest of mine. Um, What age did they retire? Why did they retire? When when did they think they'd had enough? And what would they do differently if they came back to practice? So that's another bit hanging, uh, waiting for me to do something about. But I do desperately believe that with each day passing, there are newer opportunities for us to do the the work we do properly. Um, and for me, currently in the UAE, um, I've come here for a different experience, and it is a really different experience, <laughs> but I'm hoping that it rounds off my, what I'm calling my um, um, my culturally sensitive approaches, that I'm better able to work with people of Islamic faith. I'm better able to understand um, how our assessments are really skewed To disfavor them, um, but also just wishing and hoping that um, you know people like yourselves will graduate and and show me that actually prosper. You don't need to write about this anymore because we are the guys that have changed it. Joe Burns and Rashidat have changed the system. They've changed the status quo, and really, there's no need for anti-oppressive practice in social work. It becomes a really redundant thing. And yes, I will be out of a job, and probably Yohai too. But I think it will be well worth it if we are out of Because there is no longer uh, oppression, discrimination um, um, in 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 our world and in our societies. Mm. Great. We hope we can hope for the best.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. Mm. Excellent. Prospera, I want to uh, thank you for taking the time and uh, sharing with us your ideas and your experience and your findings. It's all really interesting. I'm sure there was uh, a lot here for the listeners to uh, draw them inside the book and and uh, go and get it, buy it. Thank you. thank you very much also to my two co-hosts. And the uh, opportunity.
3: Thank
2: you. <laughs> I'm definitely going to be reading your book during Christmas time because I, I need to re, I need to re, you know read it again. You With know, a okay. really hard copy, not electronic copy. No electronic copy. Thank you, Rashidat. <laughs>
1: thank you, Thanks,
0: thank you. Jay. Okay. And our listeners, um, join us for the next podcast in the following week. Take care.